Welcome in, everyone. Welcome to the Buddhist Wisdom Podcast. As you probably can see here today, I have Sharon Salzberg with me uh, to chat about her new book, Real Life. So uh, welcome, Sharon. Yeah. Super happy to have you. Thank you so much. It's good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. Um, For those of you who, well, I don't know. I don't want to assume anything, but I'm guessing most of our listeners um, know of you, Sharon. But just in case, I thought to offer a short introduction. So Sharon Salzberg is a meditation teacher, best-selling author, and co-founder of Insight Meditation Center in Barrie, Massachusetts, uh, with Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield. She's the author of 12 books, correct? Not 11, but 12 now. 12. Okay. <laughs> 12. 12 books, including uh, Loving Kindness, Real Happiness, Real Love, Real Change. And now the book we're going to discuss today, which is called Real Life, The Journey from Isolation to Openness and Freedom. Which, what a cool title. Um, and so, yeah, again, welcome, Sharon, and just super happy to chat with you about your book and yeah just to yeah get to hear from you a bit thank you yeah so um i have some questions for you um we can also banter if that's more fun but um first of all just this book real life it i have some things i've been reading it and it's it's a wonderful book and um just just first off, I, if you don't mind, I'll say a quick thought about it. And then I mostly want to hear from you about it, obviously, because uh, you're the author. But, um, you know, as I'm, as I'm kind of gathering my thoughts for our conversation on this book, this book, the more I read it, the more it feels like a letter to a friend. You know, the more it feels like a, almost like a guidance manual. Like if you're just like, you know, here you know, a friend asks you, Hey, Sharon, you know, what do you think about this? You're like, okay, here, you know, Sharon, I need some help with this. You're like here, you know? And so I, I had a hard time actually coming up with a cohesive idea of what I wanted to talk to you about. Cause there's so much, it's just, there's so much in the book. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. I, I, uh, it's the first book I think I've written or certainly in a very long time with not traveling at all, you know, because I was just here in Barry and kind of locked down like so many people were. And uh, it, it made for a different kind of experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, congratulations on the book, by the way. It's a wonderful book. I forgot to say that. Um, so, so yeah, just, just with that in mind, I mean, I'm sure everyone is coming to you uh, with different takes on how the book is affecting them. Just wanted to share that briefly um, because I'm also choosing some things from the book to 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 maybe ask you about and and I just want the readers to know who who are the listeners to know who haven't read the book yet um there's there's so much more there's just a lot in this book um so I guess the first thing I I wanted to hear from you is is what made like how did you come to write this book because you're you're the author of 11 books like why write a 12th book like what <laughs> what how'd that come about this is going to be like a confessional is because the publisher asked me to. Okay. okay. Uh, you know, I mean, I was here um, in Barry, Mass. I also had an apartment in New York City. I spent February of 2020 traveling around California and teaching. <clears throat> I got back to New York in early March and, you know, people were starting to get really pretty sick and, mm. Uh, there's a lot of anxiety, tremendous anxiety and uncertainty. And I had the thought at one point, maybe I'll go up to Barry for two weeks and ride it out till it's over. So I came up here in, in mid-March um, with my snow boots and the center of the retreat center was still open at the time. And within like five days, it had to close and everything changed. And uh, I was doing an enormous amount of teaching online. I just felt so badly for people who were, Struggling so much. And uh, in the course of that, the, this publisher actually um, wrote and said, would you like to write another book? Maybe something else in the real series. And I thought about it very deeply and whether I wanted to or not. And both the contact I was having with people and just feeling so much for them and what people were going through. And the fact that I was in lockdown, like I was in isolation 
and the fact that um, I saw this show on YouTube called Saturday Night Seder uh, celebrating the Passover. And it reminded me that symbolically taking it totally away from geopolitics, symbolically, that is a journey of all people at all times Mm. toward freedom. And the word Egypt actually means narrow place or narrow straits. So it's a journey from feeling trapped and uh, no options and I can't breathe and to a state of openness and freedom. And I thought, there's a book, yeah. you know, there's an arc of a book. And, and so I, I got to write it. Wonderful. I, so, so your, your kind of, um, I guess, structure to it is, is, is basically that journey of, from narrowness to, I mean, there's a few different ways you, you talk about it and uh, talk about that in the book. Um, I mean, you use the word openness, but also you use, um, uh, constriction, you know, to openness, correct? Yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean, I didn't want to imply that that narrowness was the same as being determined or one-pointed or intentional, because I don't think it is. It yeah. really is a sense of being trapped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and ultimately, I mean, as I'm reading the book, I, I as a Buddhist practitioner, and, you know, generally we, uh, we like to talk about Buddhism on this podcast somewhat, um, mostly, you know, how that relates to our individual lives and others, but um, it, it, it is a Dharma book, uh, this book. And, you know, that, that's my take on it as I'm reading it. And um, within that, yeah, that, that sense of, um, you, you know, you go through quite a bit of description of, of how the, the traditional Buddhist path describes narrowness and uh, versus, or, sorry, I was misspoke. It's not constriction versus openness. It's constriction versus expansion, right? Yeah, which is, yeah. So, so I think um, for you, how does that weave in? Because I mean, for, again, for for some of the listeners, I think most of my listeners know know you <laughs> in some capacity. But for those who don't, I mean, your 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 background is so vast in in Buddha Dharma in the West. I mean, so so I'd love to hear anything you have to say around that connection into the book. Also, actually, I'll save my second question. Yeah, for later. Okay. So, um, you know, as I say in the introduction, if I think about that journey from constriction to expansion or isolation to openness and, and freedom, of course, the, the pattern or the, the languaging I'm most familiar with is from the Buddhist teaching. And so yeah. um, I try to look at when do we tend to feel the most constricted uh, it's when we're the most overwhelmed, you know, we feel the most trapped. We can't breathe. It's uh, it's a lot of pain often. And that's greed, hatred, and delusion from within that framework. And uh, it's been clear to me for many years that it's not just the arising of those states, but it's the way we hold them. Mm. As Sonny Rinpoche would say, it's not the thought that's the problem, it's the glue. Yeah, You know, so when we're overcome by one of those states, that's when there's really a tremendous amount of suffering. And I also try to look at those states uh, in a, sort of with a contemporary lens, you know, like instead of just saying greed, I uh, began to investigate addiction and addictive patterns. And um, instead of just saying hatred, I was really fascinated by the idea of shame because within the Buddhist psychology, there are different ways of distinguishing it, but there are useful states of remorse or, or regret, even though painful, they're very useful. And then there are other states that are not <laughs> yes. that useful. They're really like a trap. And uh, we might call that guilt. We might call that shame. Um, certainly in the Western uh, psychological construct, it would be shame. You know, it's not just saying like I blew it when I said that thing or didn't say anything at all in that meeting and lessons learned. You know, that's a really painful memory. I have to try to go on and try to be different. Um, instead of that, it's like, I am so terrible. I am so horrible. Yeah. You know, I can never change, um, which is useless. You know, it's painful. It's exhausting. It's demoralizing. And it's, it's not all we're leading in any way. It's a form of hatred. Yeah. Uh, so that was really interesting to me to try to explore different nuances and dimensions of these states. And then a very crucial part was what do you do about them? You know, if you just get more ashamed and more afraid and you heap 
all that on your head, it's not going to do anything. And so um, rather than trying to annihilate them and, and have that sort of embattled mentality, can we create almost like a different holding environment so that our relationship to them shifts? And interestingly enough, um, you know, in being interviewed about the book, the one practice that everyone, and certainly most of them have not been practitioners themselves, everyone picks up on his handshake, which also <laughs> comes from Sonny Rinpoche. Yeah. Um, it just seems very striking as a way of, oh, that's different. It's a <laughs> yeah. different way of, of relating to something that's been causing me a lot of problems and, you know, practicing however we express it, that different relationship gets us moving. And then um, there are fascinating things about a journey. You know, what do we want to take with us? What do we might want to leave behind? And, and then the other part of it is uh, really cultivating what we are capable of, which mm. is gratitude and generosity and loving kindness and so on, and feeling the relief and the expansiveness of those states. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. So much there. Yeah. For the listeners, I mean, Sharon, I don't remember where, did we meet at one of Rinpoche's retreats? Was that the first Probably. time? I, I, Probably. Yeah. So, so I, I don't know if it's okay to out you, but you know, Sharon is a longtime friend of Sonia Rinpoche. And, and those of you probably know, listen to this regularly. Sonia Rinpoche is one of my main teachers. So um, yeah, when I saw the handshake practice in there, I got excited and also I, I, really happy for people. Um, you know, handshake practice as Rinpoche teaches it has been... Um, probably one of the most transformative practices for me uh, personally. Um, I think before it's, it is like that, you know, you describe the sense of people reading and be like, Oh, I never thought of it that way. When I first came to it and probably, you know, from being around uh, Sonia Mshay for many years, um, he also embodies a a sense of the handshake practice and just how he is. And um, that gets transmitted. And I think the first retreat I went to, it was almost this like, it was a mix of awe and like, like, huh? Like as if I like hit my head against the wall. Cause it was just this thing. I, this huge blind spot for me for many years. So, so that's wonderful to hear. Um, maybe we could talk about that a little bit. You know, I, I'd love to hear from, from you first, specifically, you know, what you think that piece of the handshake practice that's, that's unique for people. And especially in relation to what we're talking about, you know, shame, uh, hatred, greed, et cetera. Yeah. Well, it's been interesting for me, you know, seeing that because uh, there are, I think, several ways one could express that same attitudinal shift. And that seems to be the one that mm-hmm. is most captivating for people, um, which is interesting. Like um, Within kind of uh, Burmese tradition, the popular way of saying that was actually popularized by Tara Brock, one of the, the teachers, um, called RAIN, R-A-I-N, you know, so it's recognizing what's happening, acknowledging it or accepting it, rather than fighting it and hating yourself for it, Um, investigating it so that if there's enough space around what's going on, we have a chance to see more deeply into it. Not like, why is it here and what am I going to do about it? But what is this? You know, what is this made of? And, you know, if we're looking at anger, for example, we may see sadness within it. We may see fear within it. We will likely see a sense of helplessness within it. We'll see change within it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's actually in a live system. We think these things are so inert and and unmoving, unchanging. But when we actually can look, instead of fighting it and being freaked out about it, it's like, oh, look at that. Yeah. It's moving. It's changing. And um, so that's the investigate. And then the end. Uh, has changed in time, the end in rain. Uh, it started out with non-identifying, you know, rather than, say, grabbing onto that anger and, and declaring I'm such an angry person and I always will be. These days, Tara in particular uses end uh, for nurturing. Mm. Like, be kind to yourself anyway. Yeah. You know, even though you've got this really intense and kind of uh, difficult and complicated thing going on, you can still be kind to yourself. Yeah. And in the handshake, you know, for me, the, the, the unique aspect of it is the, is the fourth aspect of not trying to fix, manipulate, change anything, which I think is a quite radical 
you know, because there's, I, I guess we could say there's nurturing in that, you know, but, but it's, but I don't know if, if you sense any kind of distinct thing. And, and maybe that relates to people being like, oh, I didn't, you know, that's like a new thing for people. Well, I mean, I think that's, that's inherent and maybe it's implicit in the acknowledge part in the A. Got it. You know, yeah. that's, that's what we're doing. We're not trying to strategize our way out of it. We're not blaming ourselves for it. Uh, we're not declaring, you know, I'm done with that and it's never going to appear again or, yeah. or whatever. You know, it's like, okay, this is what's happening right now. Yeah. Um, so I, I see a lot of similarities, but there's, there's something I think quite captivating in the way Rinpoche describes it. Yeah. Do, do you want to describe it for listeners who don't know of it or would you like me to? Or? Oh, I think I would like you to. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay, br- very briefly, because there's a, I have a lot of content on this. People can go check it out elsewhere. But basically, the handshake practice Sharon and I are discussing, which Sharon mentions in her book, is, as Sharon already said, um, it, it's, um, it is uh, uh, kind of an invention of Sony Rimshe, though he, he admits that, you know, he had the help of some uh, friends who were psychotherapists and, you know, modern psychology. And he basically blended some elements of Mahamudra meditation coming from the Tibetan lineages into, you know, with somatic psychology, with, with some other psychotherapy methods. And it's basically a, um, a mindfulness of feeling practice, a mindfulness of body practice, dropping into the body and, and attempting or practicing letting be with whatever's arising. And um, what's not letting be is, is suppressing what's arising, becoming or indulging in it. Uh, running away or, or what Sharon and I were, and I were just discussing, uh, trying to fix, change, manipulate. So, you know, I was recently doing a, doing a, a Q&A for full, the Fully Being community of, of Sonia Rinpoche's course. And, and I was reviewing some of Rinpoche's teachings. And the one that stuck out about Handshake the most for me was, Handshake is more about what you're not doing than what you're doing. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I would love... Anything to add, Sharon, please. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so much in that. There's like layers and layers and layers because yeah. it implies you're forgiving yourself for what you're feeling. You know, you're not carrying on a, a pattern of maybe really harsh self judgment, hmm. which leads nowhere. Again, you know, it's not to be complacent about things, but it's to be wise about things. You know, like what's actually going to work to disentangle this kind of grabbing onto these states and having them be so constricting and, um, you know, this, that implies that kind of forgiveness, that self-compassion, that balance. There's, there's a real balance in being aware of what's happening yeah. without freaking out about it. Um, perspective. I mean, there's so many things that are in there and it's a really fun way of describing it. Yeah. 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 What, what I find, I'm not sure with students you interact with on the handshaking practice or, or any embodiment practice for that matter is, uh, you know, it's just so hard for us in the modern world to, to be with our, our sensations and, and emotions. It's just very hard because they, you know, immediately we want to get rid of them, including we want to use meditation to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay. <laughs> so we can move on a little bit. Um I have a question, but I kind of put it down, but maybe I'll ask it now because it kind of came up already. You know, yeah, you mentioned it, but I'll, but I'll um, bring it back into the conversation. In the first few chapters, especially, I believe the first chapter or second chapter, you, you, you describe this instance of the Seder and you use the Seder as an, you know, the Jewish Seder as an analogy for that narrowness versus expansion. Um, and I was just really curious on a personal level, as much as you feel comfortable sharing, um, we also share, you know, Jewish roots in common. That's my, my birth. Uh, um, I, for me, it's an ethnicity, you know, actually it's not so much my spiritual path, but it's an ethnicity, but I, you know, it does seem that, that it, for me, what I got through the book is, is you do have a very strong connection to the, the spiritual practices of Judaism and 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 yet, of course, you, you know, you've been not only going deep in your own Buddhist practice for 30, 40 plus years, but but um uh you share that with others. So I was just kind of curious on that convergence for you. I was really you know curious for you on a personal level how those two things converge. Yeah, not so much actually. I mean, I you no. know, I, I grew up uh in part with my grandparents who were quite observant, and so 
there was a period of my life where I was, you know, not turning on the lights on Saturday or something like that. And, yeah. Um, but I wouldn't say it was a, a very meaningful set of rituals for me. I think um, really the, the Seder stood out in, in all of that as a gathering of family. And my family mm. was very broken, you know, broken apart and um, in lots of different ways. And so uh, it just had that kind of special resonance. And in later years when I've, I've led Seders and things like that, I tend to use the Jewish Buddhist Haggadah as the text. Uh, which will interpose, you know, uh, Papa Sambhava with uh, <laughs> Moses or something like that. Um, because that is really the spiritual language that I I understand like bone deep or I adhere yeah. to, you know, in the, in the deepest way. And so um, it's really more for that kind of family sense. So maybe it's not that different from you, you know, after all. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Yeah. So, so the meaning for you is in that community, is in that gathering, yeah, yeah. yeah more than anything else. Yeah, that makes for, for me. It's the food. <laughs> it's it's always been the food, which is the gathering. There's the food. <laughs> um, awesome. So, you know, one thing um, I'm I've always been in awe of you as a Dharma teacher, and and you know part of it's something that i see in your teaching work i mean there's many things that you do well and and the way you benefit others is is for me quite amazing but um but specifically in the way you tell stories and you know it, it's something i'm i i think it's it's like a quality i want to develop so obviously sometimes we see in others what we want to develop but this question i this question started to develop for me around the role of stories in 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 your teaching work and the role of stories in the book because the book i would say is it's like 70 percent stories almost or it's half stories so yeah any, any thoughts on that i'd love to hear about that yeah you know and i think uh interestingly enough that's what people tend to remember and even if they remember the story wrong they remember the point right yeah. you know i've had that experience too and say you know when you told about the time i think really you know but they got the point of the story in, yeah. in some other form. That's that's how we learn, maybe. Um, that's that's a very meaningful way of communicating. And for me, it started, uh, I started teaching with Joseph Goldstein in 1974. He was uh, at Naropa Institute. Um, it was the first summer that it was, it was opened. And uh, a bunch of us, I had just come back from India and went to visit him. Uh, and Jack Cornfield was living down the hall and um, Joseph's course uh, was so popular. He was asked to stay on for the second session and I stayed on with him. And then we got invited to teach a month long retreat. So it was the first retreat that we taught in this country. And I was absolutely petrified of public speaking. It's like I could not bring myself to give a talk and I could speak to people. I could do Q&A maybe or... Uh, talk to them about their meditation. But my my fear was that I was going to be giving a more formal lecture. My mind would go blank. I wouldn't know what to say next. I'd be sitting there, you know. Like, uh, uh, so this is a 30-day course. Just had to, the way we do uh, retreats, intensive retreats, is we may be meeting with people during the day, people are practicing, and then there's one formal talk at night only. And I couldn't do it. So Joseph had to give 30 talks. Wow. Uh, you know, and all these people were coming up and yelling at him, like, why won't you let her speak? Why won't you let her have a voice? And he was like, I talked to her, you know, like, <laughs> I just couldn't do it. I was so scared. Yeah. And uh, a long time went by. And then I had the thought, you know, uh, there is that practice called loving kindness, which I had learned about, but hadn't really done intensively. And there was a guided meditation that goes along with it. So maybe if that happens, my mind goes blank. And that was the topic. It was loving kindness. I could launch into the guided meditation and no one would know. So it was the only thing I could talk about for a very long time was loving kindness. Yeah. And then one day I thought, you know, it's really all about loving kindness. It doesn't have to be, no one's here to, you know, get excited about my expertise about anything, you know, yeah. it, it's like a connection. And so that we're all on this path and, 
we can encourage one another. And, and that's really what it's about. And somewhere in there, somebody said to me, you know, you don't have to sound like Joseph. You don't have to sound like anyone else. Um, you know, very logical, philosophical. Uh, he said, sound like you. You know, he mm. said, like those the monks and uh, this other sort of branch, the Thai forest tradition. He said, they just tell stories. Mm. That's how they teach. And I thought, huh, that might be a thing I can do. You know, and so it just kind of came that way. Yeah, wow. What, what, you know, was that something that you had to practice doing or did that come a little bit more natural? Or was it similar to, to kind of public speaking? Uh, I think it just came, you know, but because it's easier. Yeah. Um, but I love the... You know, I've told stories, for example, for the Moth, this organization, which is like a storytelling organization, and they train you how to do it better, which I really, and that's why I did it. I, I wanted the training. I thought, this is very great. That's so cool. Um, so there's some, you know, if it's okay to quote some some parts of the book, if that's okay with you. Um, specifically, it, this comes a little later in the book on on connection um, I forget the name of the chapter, but I think it's it's close to the end. And um, I'll just read this and then we, we can go, go ahead. So we live, uh, quote, we live in a more atomized society. An outside emphasis on individualism is often coupled with a worldview of scarcity. Pervasive need to accumulate as much as I can for me and mine. So, you, you know, this really, for me, summed up a large part of our of our kind of modern predicament you know and 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 i was curious i mean you definitely provide some outlets for so, solutions or or practices or methods to work with but you know i i just kind of wanted to hear how more from you how you see this playing out in in those around you and students you interact with and, and in particular because this is a kind of a buddhist meditation podcast or a meditation podcast how you see that playing out in meditators you know like how does that play mm -hmm. out what do you notice well, as I'm sure you know, like the um, Surgeon General of the United States is uh, talking and writing a lot about loneliness and mm -hmm. um, how it's like an epidemic and uh, it has, uh, you know, according to him, very severe health consequences. And, um, and even before the pandemic, you know, I would read about epidemics of loneliness and I, I would read about how sense of social connection can be a healing agent, a strong healing agent in different clinical conditions. And I kept thinking, well, it can't just be a numbers game. You know, like I only have two friends. I need at least seven, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, it must be some inner sense because I certainly know, and I'm sure you do, and maybe most people do, someone who is not like a social butterfly but has such a powerful sense of connection and caring, you know, toward others and, uh, so I really felt it must be like an inner sense of belonging, mm. you know, being able to find yourself in others and having a strong, sometimes a strong understanding of interconnection and and so on and being part of a whole in a way. And, yeah. uh, and everything I've seen you know, during the pandemic really reinforced that. I mean, there was so much isolation, you know, and it was so toxic for so many people. Um, and... You know, I used to read those chats all the time because I was teaching practically nonstop in, in you know, periods of it. And, yeah. uh, it was just dreadful. And, um, you know, to, to understand that most people don't have necessarily that kind of inner sense. And, and the ordinary ways, the casual ways we used to hang out together are not maybe so prevalent. Like in an earlier book I talked about uh, this book by Robert Putnam called Bowling Alone, which was yeah. about the dissolution of uh, bowling leagues uh, oh, wow. you know, around the United States. And so, you know, he used to, I don't know, Wednesday or night or something like that, he used to go yeah. bowling with your friends. And that sort of stopped. And, and the adherence to organized religion and a sense of finding a community there was not there for many people. And, um, you know, so that, that's been harmful. And, and even... Certainly the advent of, of phones, you know, and yeah. people, because I grew up in New York City, you know, people would often say to me things like, 
I remember in New York, you could strike up the oddest and most interesting conversations with somebody like sitting next to you in a bus. And he said, now no one talks to one another. Everyone's on their phone. Yeah. You know, and, and so you can see how society is kind of almost conspired. It's restructured to have us be more and more alone. And so it takes a lot of effort, but the effort needs to come from that inner space, you know, that uh, we we really are connected to one another. So. Uh, what happens when I look at the world in that way? And so I've seen it. And I mean, sometimes I look back at, you know, cause I forget that it's been so many years of, of this sort of odd sort of isolation that was so prevalent again, not for everybody, but for many. And, yeah. you know, somebody said to me uh, something about like, when did you last see so-and-so? And I said, you know, a while ago, and they said, well, it's got to have been more than three years ago, right? I yeah. think, oh, right, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wow, that went fast in a way. You know, or yeah. what a strange thing. It's been four years since I've seen some friends. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I do feel very close to people via, you know, social media or Zoom or something like that. I genuinely do. So, But not yeah. everyone's like that. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm, I'm like that. Cause I'm seeing people, you know, mentees or whatever throughout the week. And yeah, that, for me, that there was a lot of warmth there in the pandemic when it was harder to socialize in person. Yeah. I'd love to stay here. Cause I think there's so much in the, you know, in the book, you do mention that during the pandemic, you, I think I remember seeing this on social media. Like, I, I think I remember, did, was this public? Like where you, you started a, um, a 1-800 line that people could call and you got volunteers with that. Was that only private? No, it wasn't friends? me. It was, it was somebody that oh. I interviewed in, in the, in the, uh, in the book. Cause you know, I have a podcast uh, okay. also. And, and so I was able for the book to look back at those, some of those conversations and, uh, okay. and include parts of them. So that somebody did start that. And I thought it was the most beautiful idea. Her name was Kathy. And, and it was basically, you could call, and ask someone to sing you a song or, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. or let's just sit together and meditate. Or could you read me, f you know, from this text or, or this yeah. novel or something like that? Or let's have a conversation. I haven't talked to anybody lately. And it was so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, sorry. I, I thought it was you, but maybe you posted it at some point or maybe it was just on your podcast. Maybe uh, it was definitely yeah. on my podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's where I saw it. Cause I vaguely remember that, but um, yeah, that was really beautiful. And, you know, you you touched on it. I, I I pulled another quote here, um, very short, but you, but you touched on it. And I'd love to uh, pro more here, where you you said um, connection is our greatest source of expansiveness. Ultimately, connection is an interstate. And you, you know, you mentioned that uh, of this difference between you know cultivating seven friends versus two, and it actually. So so I'd love to hear just more about that. I mean. As practitioners, we both know about cultivating that inner state, but but I don't know. I, I don't know if that's always so explicit. It, meaning, like meditation is such a solitary act, but it's not at its root. It's just it it, it seems that way initially, you know. Yeah, I think that's so funny, really, because it could be, you know, you might be sitting all alone, you might be sitting with your eyes closed. It seems like it would be the most withdrawn kind of activity ever. Yeah. Uh, but it, it genuinely is not because of the insight that develops is, you know, what is. And that's one of the funny things about interconnection. It's like, you know, people might approach it as a concept or a kind of superimposition that we're laying this on reality. But it is reality, you know. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't take a spiritual understanding to discern that. Like science shows us that. Economics shows us that. Um Certainly, environmental consciousness shows us that, and even epidemiology shows us that, which is something I have been saying in a pressing kind of way for a number of years. And <laughs> so, you know, what happens over there doesn't nicely stay over there ever. Mm -hmm. And it's long been my favorite question going into a company or an organization to teach. It's like, how many other people need to be doing their job well for you to do your job well? And, you know, part of it was that was enhanced during the pandemic when I was talking to this physician who has a large medical um, practice he supervises in a hospital. And he said, you know who I have an increased appreciation for? He said, the cleaning staff. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, yeah, you know. Yeah. 
And so, you know, I ask that question and mostly people ponder and they go, oh, that's interesting. And occasionally it, it doesn't strike a chord. And so I go on to say, well, do you commute to work? Do you ever think of the train engineer or the auto mechanic? Or if you don't commute, certainly there's probably technology involved. You think of those people and yeah. and that didn't go anywhere once either. So I said, have you eaten today? And what if you didn't grow all your own food? You know, like it takes a lot for that carrot to end up on your plate. Really? Let's think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Thousands, if not millions of sentient beings involved. Yeah. I mean, because of all the bugs and et cetera, unseen beings. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, You know, one thing I was reflecting on as you were talking is, is, you know, personally on a personal level, I, I don't always notice something that was so vital to the interdependence of, of a certain function in my life until it's gone, you know? And sometimes I, th- I think we're, we're an, in- an interesting place because you, know, you, you were naming this, you're naming part of the social factors of sort of, of modern life and disconnect and um, over maybe over reliance on technology and, and, and all that. And um, yeah, when I was, you know, it, when I was a monk, you know, I was, pretty right up until the end i was pretty i was pretty uh uh how do you say it committed to wearing my robes in in most places um and one thing that was interesting was 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 it was like a big banner for like you know it's like an advertisement banner for buddhism so obviously i had to be careful with you know how i acted if i was in a bad mood i couldn't necessarily express that always because i was representing something um, but at the same time, it, it, you know, more than not, it was it was a very useful tool of connection because people would see it, see the monk's robes, kind of be curious, and and open up a conversation or a question or something. And I considered that a part of of kind of not even a service as a monastic, but just you know, a service as a human of like being available how do you say like 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 a sense of generosity that we you know not always being in a rush everywhere and and having time to talk with someone and you know now i'm it's very different for me you know i have a daughter and you know i keep pretty busy with my with my teaching work and stuff and and i've noticed how how that that's impacted me that that difference uh, that sense of of not um mm-hmm. the gen, you know I have other ways I offer generosity of time, but, but th- that has gone away a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. It's very interesting. There's, there's a, um, depersonalization in a good way or something. Yeah. I have this friend who does, uh, who, who does VR and meditation work and, and it's really interesting. He's seeing some, you know, where, where technology can often be this, you know, thing that moves us apart um he's saying the opposite so he's saying you know if you design it in a certain way it can Mm -hmm. also come you know bring us back to what serves us the most Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. oh yeah well Um, i I was i was so grateful like when sunny rupee started teaching online you know like yeah um yeah yeah i think yeah the pandemic produced a lot of not so good things but but some really good things i mean some of the some of the teachings I received in the Tibetan lineages via Zoom would have not like those teachers would have never ever ever come on Zoom. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's yeah, just yeah, like yeah, like yeah. for for in the you probably as you're aware in the Tibetan lineages it's sort of like they question if certain things can be done virtually. Mm-hmm. So so they were really reluctant and uh, some, mm-hmm. some teachers, and so it it really created there's just a boom right yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I had one more kind of specific thing. If you have any thoughts on it uh, around this this issue of connection being both an inner and outer thing, and and more just related to you know back to what we were discussing a minute ago about meditators and sometimes the view that that meditation is the solitary. I mean, just self admittedly, I spent a pretty decent chunk of my time as a meditator in this life, or or trying to be a meditator um isolated meaning like you know getting angry if somebody's interrupting my meditation or something like that or, or miffed maybe is more of a better word or slightly annoyed and and you know which is showing okay there's something missing here there's you know so 
So I think a lot of us struggle with that. So I don't know if you had mm-hmm. any thoughts on that, you know, specific to meditators. Well, I mean, that's, you know, classically probably the role of the teacher is to annoy us for one thing, <laughs> you know, and, and interrupt us and, uh, you know, uh, taunt us when we do get impatient, like, oh, you know, you're impatient, you're sitting there, you know, praying for the happiness of all beings and then this person interrupts you and you hate them, you know. <laughs> you know, that's that's the mirror they hold up in front of us and say, look at that, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we're very conditioned and, and uh, it, it is definitely, you know, a challenge because we tend to bring all of that conditioning right into the meditative process, you know, or yeah. onto our path. And so there's all that self-judgment perhaps or, or shame or um, kind of clinging, you know, like I'm going to get there fastest or yeah. wherever there is. <laughs> uh, and including like, my path is far better than anyone else's. Um, lots and lots of habits of mind that come right along with us. And uh, do we tend to see them ourselves? I think with a sincere motivation in time, we will see them. Yeah. And a teacher certainly can hasten that process. Yeah. 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 So what I'm hearing is, is from your perspective, it's almost, it's just unavoidable because obviously we're going to bring whatever we're dealing with in our life to the meditation. Yeah. 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 Have you, have you seen kind of the role? Cause you, you started, you know, with Joseph and, and Jack, one of the first Western Dharma communities, maybe the first. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you have so much experience with community. So I, I don't know, just, just any more thoughts on that? Cause I just see this as such a, this is a very tricky part of the import of, you know, um, Asian Buddhist lineages into the West. So, so just curious, any insight there? Well, it is, it is very uh, nuanced and, and complex, but um you know, it's a balance, I think, like, because, uh, you know, sometimes in the West, uh, people feel that there should be no hierarchy in a community, you know, or no specialization in the community. And that's kind of crazy making, you know, because I don't have, I'm not just a community, I have an organization here, which has a board of directors and, a you know, a financial responsibility and keeping, I mean, we just had a sewer pipe blow, you know, after... Almost 50 years, that was unpleasant, you know, like. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> someone has to take care of that, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, so yeah, that was like outrageous. Uh, <laughs> you know, so we've kind of gone, you know, in different places with this, but I, you know, just as I honor the fact that I have a teacher and, uh, you know, we're different teachers and, um. But there's some underlying self-respect that's also very, very important. And, you know, I wrote a book years ago called Faith, and people were saying, why are you writing a book on that? Because for them, faith meant being silenced or mm-hmm. not being able to ask questions. And so, uh, you know, that can't prevail either, you know, on and, and be like a vibrant and alive spiritual community. And so... um it, it's a powerful vessel for for a lot of learning. And I think, you know, I didn't realize because in Asia, you know, living in India, um, whereas where I met, you know, so many people like Joseph, uh, we had an, a kind of a, inevitable community. And, and mm-hmm. I think we all took it for granted. And it was back here after teaching for some time that I realized, wow, you know, here's this person who's like getting up and going to work. They work in some environment where they're being asked to lie. Mm-hmm. You know, that could be the case, or or it's a little shifty, or or their values are just not reflected there at all. Yeah. And then they come home, you know, and uh, or you know, then when I began working with caregivers, I worked with a lot of domestic violence shelter workers, for example. That was the first primary group and and they were very alone because they felt not because even because of confidentiality but they felt they couldn't burden their family with the terrible 
stuff they were hearing and seeing. And so, mm. and they weren't talking to each other either. Or you talk to doctors, you know, of a certain era, they weren't talking to each other. And, and so people were like dealing with so much, mm. uh, trying to do well and do good and, and being so alone. And again, it was like a construct, you know, of society. And it took me a long time to realize that these people are really alone, you know, like, Unlike myself who had, you know, Joseph and Dan Goldman and people for my first breath, conscious breath, you know. And, and so really it, it became an emphasis that where it had not been early in our teaching. Do you think that was, that was a, I'm trying to think of the right word, the situation you all ended up in, you know, going to India, Asia, as kind of like early explorers in the... Uh, this was the early 60s or mid-60s or... It was the early, early 70s. I early went in 1970, yeah. Yeah. Um, you think it was almost like y'all didn't have a choice? It was sort of like if we're... There were so few people doing that, that when you brought it back to the West or the States, you, you almost had to. Like community was just inevitable, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's uh... You know, when we came back, um, meditation was still kind of woo-woo and, you know, seen as woo-woo and, yeah. and oh, strange and esoteric. And But we were teaching, and so people had a chance to have an experience of it. And there was no technology then. It didn't exist. And um, we, I remember somebody proposed to us once that we create a series of tapes, this is a long time ago, like videotapes that they would sell in uh, health food stores mm. so yeah. that if somebody was going in for some vitamin C, they might see a how to meditate tape or something and buy it and, and be served by it. And we had actual big discussions like, is that ethical? Mm. You know, because the thing that would characterize my generation of of people meditating is that we had big intentionality because you couldn't find it casually. You know, yeah, you yeah. really had to want to learn it. And so like I had to go to India when I'd never even been to California, you know? And uh, so either you had significant suffering in your life or you were put together in some way, you had just like intense curiosity about life and you just wanted to see more deeply. And, but whatever it was, it was intense, you know. Yeah. Because you had yeah. to, you had to really find it, and um, and that's that was the ethical question. Like, what if someone's just going in for vitamin C? Is it okay that they end up with meditation instruction? They don't have that intention, you know, mm -hmm. that drive, and it never happened anyway. And then, of course, now it's laughable because you know that's why I'm laughing. Yeah, <laughs> it's everywhere. You know, like uh, <laughs> yeah, the ethics of a of a cassette tape and a in a health food store versus what's happening now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think it's great what's happening now in terms of access yeah. and um, why should you have to go to India? And, and uh, the question of motivation or intention, of course, is there kind of implicit, but it shouldn't be, I think, because it's withheld, you know, that people have to have to find that. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I see that as like a really key difference culturally for us where it's sort of you know everything's there and then it's up to us to grow the discernment of how to interact with something where yeah like you know you had to ask a teacher a few times generally in tibet before they'd give you something real serious practice related and they were checking to make you know not because they were trying to hide something they were trying to protect the student you know generally they were trying to make sure the student uh would would be benefited from it mm -hmm. as opposed to just wasting the student's time uh, where, where, yeah, I think it's just a different ethic. Yeah, I agree with you. It's just, it's just there, and now we have to kind of have our discernment. That's a whole nother episode, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs> um, I, I know you got to go, but um, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to circle back to your book, and um, yeah, since since we don't have too much time, is there anything you, you'd love to share around your book that we didn't cover, or anything that that you're just that's up for you right now? You know, that you'd love to share with me or others. I think, well, first of all, you should invite me back. That would be nice. Yes, you, you, that's, you, you're invited back. 
We we'll talk. We can talk about discernment and intention. It'd be very interesting. Cool. I'm gonna write that down. <laughs> well, actually, this is. Uh, it starts with a discussion of this research, very uh, old, pretty old research project, where all these residents in the nursing home were given a plant, and mm-hmm. half of them were told, "Well, you should pay attention to this plant. You know, see when it needs water, when it needs sunlight, or whatever." And, you're responsible for the plant and its well-being. And the other half were told, just as you know, enjoy the plant, nurses can take care of it. And then they compared those two groups in terms of longevity and health and orientation and all that. And they were quite different. And um, so then go on to describe, you know, different kinds of plants, some of which can make it, you know, they, they just survive. Uh, even if you're not paying much attention to it. But what they don't do is thrive if you're not mm. paying much attention to it. So then I go on to describe um, this word tejas from Pali, uh, which is the language of the original Buddhist text, which means heat or flame or fire or light, and also has a sense of splendor and radiance and glory. Tejas is brightness, a potent and alive energy, a strength and power of luminosity. As we uncover it, Tejas drives us toward life, openness, and renewal. This light exists nestled within us, innate to our beings, not because we're particularly unique or outstanding or did something special to deserve it, but simply because we exist. So then I go on to say, in a way, this journey from a narrow place to expansion and freedom lies outside of time and space. We can traverse that seemingly daunting distance with a thought. We can travel that length without accruing any mileage at all, with remembering right now what we really care about, or recollecting right now the source of our deepest happiness, or coming back right now to our essential selves. We can explore the terrain of awe or gratitude or self-respect or love. We needn't be fooled by the layers of fear and craving and shame and confusion covering over that light. We can remind ourselves the light is never more than partially covered. And while it may feel remote, it is accessible always. Because it is always accessible, we are here now. It's upon the seed of radiance that we turn toward the good. We nourish it. We cultivate it. It's not up to the nursing staff or our forebears or anybody else. As with the hardy plants I discussed earlier, the latent luminosity within can endure neglect but it can also thrive when it receives care and attention. Left on its own, the light will survive. Half hidden, quiescent, nurtured, the light can blaze forth. Mm. That's like my favorite part of the book. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, I remember reading that. Yeah. That's wonderful. That that um thank you for sharing that, first of all. And and yeah, that really reminds me of of Buddha nature in the Mahayana context, right? Yeah, it's this light that's there but we need to water it too. <laughs> right. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful, Sharon. Sharon, thank you so much for being here and please come back. Please, please come back. And, yeah. Thank uh, you. That's it. Yeah. Great. So thank you for, for doing all your just amazing work just on a personal level. I want to thank you. Well, thank you. Be well and uh, we'll continue this conversation. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. Take care, Sharon. Thanks. Bye-bye.